we can be really honest with you. Sometimes if you have like a guest you don't know and you're like trying to pretend that you're a really professional. <laughs> that's true. You're like, <laughs> yeah. Hey, welcome to Marginally, a podcast about writing, work, and friendship. I'm Olivia, a corporate fraud investigator living in London with my husband and two cats. I'm currently working on a novel and daydreaming about lots of other projects. And I'm Megan, a librarian and freelance indexer writing about complex women's friendships for both young adult and adult audiences. Today's episode is a conversation we recorded with writer and essayist Megan Nesmith back in May. We've been emailing back and forth about the big things, parenting, writing, work, life, and decided we just wanted to sit down and hash them out in real time. What are we doing here? What should we be doing? What is the value of work, emotionally, materially? We don't come up with any answers, but it felt good to connect. We hope it feels good to listen and think about it too. And if you have any answers, please let us know. Megan is a writer, editor, and obsessive, living and working in Boston. She writes about motherhood, relationships, mental health, culture, and the boy band formerly known as One Direction. You can find her work online and in print in Man Repeller, The Globe and Mail, The Guardian, and more. As a content marketer, she's worked with brands like Weston Marriott, Slack, and Nixware. You can find out more about Megan at MeganNesmith.com. That's M-E-G-H-A-N-N-E-S-M-I-T-H.com. And now, on to the show. Thank you so much for coming on our show, Megan. So today we have... We have two Megans. We have the usual Megan, and then we have um, Megan Nesmith. And I guess you'll figure out people's voices. Um, but <laughs> Megan N and I have been, and also Megan B. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, we've been emailing about the uh, just a huge range of really difficult questions. We became friends through some writing groups and like writing kind of courses that we were doing. Um, and we've gotten close over email, um, but all of us sort of struggle through and have made big changes, I think, in the way that we sort of write and work and balance those things, plus family developments. Um, and uh, Megan N, our guest, we basically have been emailing just like amazing big questions. And spoiler, I'm not sure we're going to get to answers, but who knows? <laughs> <laughs> we're hopeful. Um, but I just thought that, I mean, we've all thought that it would be really nice to just kind of talk through this live because it's hard to get to the bottom of something uh, generatively when you're on email, I think. And so there's like a thousand questions, probably 10 hours of questions at least. Um, but I think <laughs> let's just maybe go around and kind of talk about the questions that we have around work and life and balance and how we're sort of like, what is the thing that we're sort of struggling with? I will kick off. Why not? So, I mean, from my side, I've recently, so I had a corporate, like a successful in many ways, corporate career for like, you know, 10 to 15 years. And then recently just got to a point where that wasn't what I wanted to pursue in the same way anymore. And for various kind of global events reasons, I wanted to focus on kind of less of a kind of success oriented thing and more meaning focused. And also... I've been doing a, a master's in writing, and so I needed more time. And so I ended up completely changing my relationship, I think, to money, as well as to career and success and time. Um, and then also just spending a bit more time at home. And so really changing, you know, everything that is about how you present in the world. And it was really positive in some It felt like freedom, but it also really felt totally disconcerting. 
um, as if you like, I mean, I used to, I think this still sort of worked. I really felt that I'd kind of built up a bunch of savings in currencies that had been canceled or kind of, I couldn't spend them. And so I just like set fire to it. I don't actually think that's necessarily true, but it felt like I was throwing something away. Um, And so that was sort of where I was at. And it kind of feels difficult because the writing that I'm doing right now is not like paying anything. And so then you're sort of, you know, that balance between having the time to do the creative work that you want that isn't giving you money. And also I think that feeling that if it did start to pay me money, maybe I would feel differently about it, or you start to make different kinds of compromises as well. Um, And you have much more of a kind of established professional career as a writer, Megan. So that might be something that you might have comments on, but that sort of thing of something that's your passion, and then you also turn it into a way that you make money, it's, it changes your relationship to that as well. Yeah, that all resonates very deeply. I mean, also, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. And I, yeah, I feel like I have also sort of hit an inflection point in life and work and I'm asking myself questions that I just had sort of shied away from in the past, I think, um, questions that I've become kind of like all consuming, I guess, um, which is why it's been really nice to kind of air those out with you and, and others. And so for me, I mean, I've been freelancing for a long time. Um, I went full-time freelance in like 2017, maybe I had been working in tech before that, still like in a writing capacity, not in a smart person capacity, like <laughs> software, not, not in any like hard, useful skill capacity. Um, but I wanted to try full-time freelancing because I was never somebody who could have a full-time job and write on the side. It just like, it didn't, it didn't work for me as much as I was, I was writing. I was, you know, working on novels. I was publishing a little bit. It always felt really haphazard and like I couldn't give it the time I wanted to give it. Um, and so I went full-time freelance and what that meant for me was like personal essays, some kind of like some service journalism, working on my own sort of passion projects, and then also doing like copywriting, marketing, the stuff that actually paid, um, paid the bills. And I think that balance worked for me for a while. And then, you know, I got married, which made it easier because I had uh, a spouse with a full-time job and health insurance and kind of a cushion. It didn't feel quite as frantic. And then I had a kid and that made me start questioning sort of where I was spending my time. And then I had another kid and I felt like everything just collapsed. And where this really came to a head was about my oldest is three and a half. My youngest is just eight months. And at around six weeks, I started going back to work, like six weeks postpartum with my second. I was trying to go back to work. And I was in this situation where I was actually had been working with a company that was going to offer me a full-time job and give me six months of mat leave. And then about a month before Lily, my youngest daughter, was born, they imploded in the whole tech when tech stopped being funded, like all the VC funding kind of collapsed. They lost all of their funding and I lost my job within, it was like a day, a day late. Like we had a phone call, they said, we're shutting down. (laughs) And so I was no longer getting the six months of mat leave, which I was like, you know, going back into full-time work for me was going to be a big leap, but it was with a company I really felt passionately about. Although I know that we want to exercise the word passion (laughs) from work. We've been talking about that, but like I did, I liked them a lot. The people I was working with, I liked the work. 
and it also, they were very um, open about, you know, we know you have creative stuff that you do on the side. We know you have a family. We want to support all of that and make this job like a, a ballast so that you can do that other work. Um, so it was really going to be like a dream situation and then it fell apart. And so at six weeks postpartum, I was going back to work and we were trying to find childcare. And I just had this moment of like, what am I doing? Like, well, like handing off my baby so that I can write marketing copy about supplements. Like everything just felt so wrong. And I could not feel, I, I could not figure out an equation that made it feel okay. And yeah, that's where I think I, all of this kind of took off for me and these conversations kind of took off. And, and I will say totally off, like I have not figured it out yet. <laughs> um, I have, I have no, I'm no closer to figuring it out, but that's where, that's where I feel like things kind of blew up. If that makes sense. makes a ton of sense. Yeah. And I have follow-up questions, but I want, I'll, we'll let Megan get into it and then we'll see where we meet. Yeah, no, it totally makes sense. And, um, so I kind of have the reverse, like I had my, my kids are older. Um, they, I had them when I was 29 and 31 and I had started a career in libraries and then I had them and we move a lot for my husband's job, which makes like a linear career progression really difficult, but it was fine. I did some freelance editorial stuff knowing when I went into it that it wasn't something I wanted to do forever. I kind of gave myself this sort of 10-year limit. And that's about when I got tired of it and decided to move on. And But lately I've gotten, I guess what's happened, it's it's similar, but it's kind of the reverse. Um, my kids are now old enough, like one can babysit. Um, you know, the other one is 10. So if he needs to, he's pretty independent. They can take themselves to and from school. Um, I mean, I still take my 10 year old just because it's nice to ride my bike for a little bit in the mornings, but you know, they're pretty independent. They can feed themselves. They, I go to bed before they do on weekend signs. Uh, and so it's just kind of, I, I, it's like, I've, I've gotten to this stage where now I'm looking and, you know, I'll be two this summer and I'm looking around thinking like, okay, now is the time when I need to decide what career, you know, do I just quit? trying to write and restart my library career, which I started, I worked last year when we lived someplace else, uh, you know, or do I quit trying to do that and really focus on trying to get a writing career started? But I feel like, do I have, do I have the the time and the energy and the focus, even with, even with my kids needing different things from me than, you know, toddlers and even with them being really independent, you know, they come home from school and go upstairs and I don't even see them for an hour, um, which is you know, it's great, but sometimes I'm like following them around like, Hey, how's school buddy? And, um, <laughs> you know, but I, I feel like I'm also at a crossroads, but it's kind of a different kind. It's like, choose, choose a lane now and focus on it. And then, but at the same time, like Olivia was saying, like, it's, it's really hard to say, Oh, you know, I'm going to be a writer. And, you know, I know I talked about this recently on Instagram. Like I have been killing myself to finish a draft of a book. I don't want to write. And I'm like, what is the point of this? I'm not under contract. I don't even have an agent. Like, why am I doing this? Um, and you know, I send short things out, but it takes forever to hear back. And so it's not paying bills of any kind. Um, I do have the experience and credentials to work as a librarian and it's fulfilling. Like it's, I get a lot out of it. I love people. I love working with kids. Um, information access is like kind of a core tenant of this world and it's being threatened. And I feel like there's a lot of like community good that can be done. Um, 
and it would be it's like the easy choice I guess um but whenever I think oh what am I gonna I don't ever think what am I gonna quit I just think am I gonna quit libraries or not like I don't think am I gonna quit writing or not although I guess it's Mm -hmm. also on the table um which I find so I don't know I'm I'm just I find it I didn't even want to be know that I wanted to be a writer until I was pregnant with my second child. So mm. it's just like making that decision and trying to make that transition over the last 10 years while having little bitty kid home. And then when you say that about like, do, why am I giving, you know, why am I like sending my baby to somebody else so I can be passionate about, you know, business to business communication, um, which is, I totally agree, but I also see how much you are enjoying and loving like your time with them. And it's part of me wishes or wonders, um, could I have enjoyed it more when they were little? And, you know, maybe if I wasn't, I didn't have, it was like my body was always busy, but my brain felt like it wasn't busy. And I was always trying to make it busier because that's just me. And then there's the whole thing of like, I have a really expensive college education. I have also have an expensive master's degree. I have, you know, this whole growing up in the eighties of like, be a working parent. I had my parents both worked and it's like, am I letting the side down? Um, mm. And also, I, you know, I don't remember the last time I held a baby, like, you know, I have friends with babies and it's like, oh, they're so cute, but I'm much more the one who's going to like get down on the floor with the seven-year-old and play Legos or hang out with the teenager. Who's going to tell me that my show's something that their mom would like, and then I'll be sad. But, um, (laughs) you know, like that's, I gravitate towards older. I don't, this book that was so hard to write is middle grade. And part of it is because I don't really like middle grade books most of the time. I mean, there are some I love, but, you know, so it's like, maybe I think we tell ourselves these stories that we're supposed to enjoy everything because it's fleeting. And then I feel bad that maybe like, I feel bad for telling myself, thank God, this isn't lasting forever. But, you know, maybe that's okay. I don't know. That's where I am. I'm an advocate for not thinking you need to enjoy everything. Definitely. <laughs> like some yeah. things are just difficult, right? Or hard or something. But yeah, finding some way. I'm always like counting down to whatever thing, like I hope it ends, right? So then I'm like, okay, this ends in exactly this amount of time or whatever. Mm. Um, but I think there's also some themes there around, there's like two questions, right? In a way, there's like the allowing yourself to not be as ambitious or whatever, like externally ambitious, whether that you know, there's that, and then there's like a financial reality. And those two things, you know, might be entangled in some cases. And in some cases, like not, I don't know. Um, it's different definitely when you have kids, cause you have a different kind of maybe emotional pressure and time, like nothing in my life is really dramatically changing. Like my cats don't do anything new anymore. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Like they really sleep all day. So I have a lot of time for, um, for work. Um, but no, but there's, so that is different, but there's also like maybe deliver, like I, well, this is a slightly separate topic, but on freelancing uh, and even job applications of any kind, you're often, you like, you just feel like you should be kind of hustling or, you know, like there's never really enough in the pipeline. Right. Um, but then also, you know, from experience, A, that a lot of things that like they're not a good fit, but you're just worried maybe about not having enough or like, yeah, just that sort of scarcity mindset. Like there's no way to really turn that off in a way. Um, yeah, I'm fortunate. because Yeah, go ahead. The whole like if I say no to this person, they're never going <laughs> to ask me again. And then yeah. 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 Or you're busy, but you think, well, you know, who knows, like, I don't have anything for next month. So I'll just do twice as much work this month or saying, you know, Mm -hmm. I think it's really hard to know how to navigate that. But I guess for both of you, 
it's also, I don't know, to what degree do you think it is about like genuine financial pressures and to what degree do you think it's about kind of ambition or feeling like you're, I don't know, not doing enough, but not necessarily for actual financial. I feel like it's a, a both and situation. Like, you know, I, I think a lot of what we're talking about here is this sort of like the, what is the value of work? Like, and that, and value is both like emotional and personal and financial and we have tangled those up in a way that I don't think previous generations did. Maybe it's obviously like also a very privileged um, position to be able to consider this question, um, which I, I feel that really powerfully sometimes too, that like even taking the time to sit down and think about these things feels um, I can see my parents, like I can see my dad just being like <laughs> kind of rolling his eyes. Um, you know, cause both my parents went to work every day. They never stopped to think about like why I, I shouldn't say that they're more complex people than obviously they are in my head. I'm sure that my kids someday will think the same thing. Just like you're a cardboard cutout of a parent as opposed to an actual full-blooded human. But I do think that they had a different relationship to work, the, the like boomer generation. And in a way, I think that relationship was a lot easier in that you clock in, you clock out and you leave things behind and you don't question like, am I defined by this? Why am I doing this? What does this all mean? And I do long for that simplicity sometimes, I think, because I feel like so much of my value is tied up in work in a way that I don't like both financially and personally. So when I'm not producing, I feel like, just a total waste of space. Like what, you know, I was thinking about this um, actually just this week because it was like a less busy week for me. A couple of freelance gigs that I had wound down in the last few weeks. April was just like a mess of a month. My littlest one was sick again. We were in and out of the hospital. I like was sort of scrambling to wrap up some projects. The weather was gross. Like it was just like, it was a bad month. And I feel like kind of the, the clouds have parted. And this week in particular, I've had time to do things like on Monday, I met a friend for coffee who I'd never actually met in person. And we had this like lovely connection. I made a wedding bouquet for a friend. I have been reading another friend's manuscript to give her feedback on it. Um, I got to spend some time with my kids. I cooked a bunch of food for the baby for the week. And yet I ended the day on Monday being like, what an absolute shit I am. Sorry, can I swear on that? Absolutely. Um, (laughs) Just like, what a, what a total waste of space. I have produced nothing today. I have done nothing of value. There are no words on paper. I have made no money. And it was absurd because like, it was actually an incredibly beautiful, rewarding day in which I like did some wonderful things um, as a, as a human being. And I think that like, this is obviously not unique to freelancing, but when everything you produce has like a dollar amount attached to it, And also when you're trying to build like a a profile in the world that will then get you more contracts, more attention, more fame is like never there, but at least like the possibility that, you know, that, that golden day where an agent reaches out and says, Hey, I read this essay you wrote about shaving your legs and I'd like to offer you a three book contract. Um, It's yeah. I think then like, it's really impossible for me at least yet to decouple myself from that, that need and that attachment of value to the work. And 
you know, with, with motherhood too, I mentioned this and when we were talking earlier, but like listening to that interview that you guys did with Jane Campbell and just how she spoke about being a stay-at-home mother with this like clarity and ease that it was just like what she did. And I'm sure this is again, oversimplifying, but it seemed for her, like it was not, she did not consider that time at all wasted or um, that she wasn't progressing her career. There was just like a clarity of purpose that I long for so deeply. Um, And yet again, like we exist in a particular moment in which that, has not been coded as valuable or worthwhile. Um, but like you said, Megan, then like, I, I don't want to wake up 10 years from now and be like, I don't, I didn't, I like, I wasn't present with my kids. I didn't spend any of that time. I didn't actually enjoy it. And I also like, wasn't enjoying my work. So like, what, what was I doing? Um, yeah, it's for me, it's all connected to this question of value and like, what is value? What is the value of work? What is the value of parenting? What does value even mean? And like how that word is so loaded because it is like connected to deep financial realities. And we do exist in a country that like does not support, like you can't raise like Jane Campbell, that you can't raise four kids on a one income, at least not in Boston where I live. And I don't have four kids, but (laughs) you can't raise two kids on a, on one income. So, so yeah. Like, so what do you do? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like that is the question. And that's, I mean, I had the exact same reaction to um, when Jane Campbell said that myself, you know, and it's, I look back, you know, I look at like, you know, you put the kids to bed and then you look at pictures of them on your phone. Um, yeah. The, the classic thing. And, you know, on the rare nights when they uh, go to bed before I do, or, you know, not at the same time as I do, but I do look back and I think, you know, we did a lot, like it was great. And there were a lot of great things and, you know, on balance, but I also think, I wish I on the inside had been less anxious or Mm -hmm. conflicted or ambitious or whatever. But then again, I think for me also, the question is like, what is not just what, where is value? Um, because I, you know, I watch my kids moving through the world and interacting with other people now and feel like, there is a lot of value to, you know, so far they're pretty amazing humans. Um, you know, a lot of that is just, they were just born pretty great. Like I had good material to work with, um, giving myself all this credit, but I also wonder like, what is enough? Like, is it enough to, there's a lot of talk right now about mutual aid and community building and being with your neighborhood. And I absolutely 1000% agree with that. But at the same time, I think, you know, is just two kids and my impact on them enough? Or do I need to impact, you know, a class of 22? Or do I need to impact an entire school of kids? Or do I need, you know, is my own two block little radius and the people I interact with through some just like local community service enough? Or do I need, I don't know, like volunteer for every election campaign in Georgia? You know, (laughs) like, like, is it, there's, we get so many messages, I think on, how big the, like, do I need to sit on the book challenge board of my local school or do I need to be like running a whole campaign for the whole state or like the country? You know, we get all these messages about how the world, the entire world, the whole fucking world is a disaster. And it's like, okay, so is it up to me to fix that? Or is just fixing my one kid enough? Mm -hmm. Like where, 
where do you draw the line as far as influence? Um, and I think this plays into like writing, obviously, because as writers, we're always trying to, and I just read um, Rebecca Solnit's Orwell's Roses. And, you know, this is something writers have been thinking about forever. Like Orwell wrote about it. Are we, are we just like wasting our time, like making pretty things or, you know, the other end of the spectrum, I, you know, remember in 2016, all of the like writing's going to change the world. You know, we can, as artists, we can fight for what's right. I don't know. I'm, I know the answer is like, there's some thing in the middle, right? That's not either like just inside your house or the whole, but finding where to get there is hard. Yes. I sorry go ahead Megan well no I was going to ask you actually because I feel like that was sort of part of your calculus wasn't it Olivia in terms of leaving your corporate job and like everything that was happening in Ukraine and and doing work now that is that it seemed like you at least felt really compelled to do work that was politically like culturally connected to this thing that this atrocity that was happening yeah I would it just, is happening yeah I yeah I've thought a lot about it basically and I think I mean all always I've always wanted to do something like this like the term would be like using my professional skills which is in investigations for something that is like good right but I also think like with a little bit of distance there's probably a mix I think that there is one, an anxiety where if you think, if you really are feeling like really compelled that whatever you're doing is not valuable, then I think that that feeling is a useful sign to you of like where something is wrong, but is not like, it doesn't mean that in order for you to fix it, you have to somehow have some kind of big impact. I think it's more Mm -hmm. a sign of being out of alignment, probably. So Because in retrospect, I mean, actually, I did have a lot of meaning when I was living in Ukraine. I like built a team that I'm still really proud of. And those people still have jobs. And like, you know, and I definitely still had some sense of being a kind of corporate. If you listen to our early episodes, I say I'm a corporate drone. Right. And like, I absolutely wasn't. But, you know, you have this kind of identity. And but I do think that that had a kind of micro impact and I've been kind of reconceptualizing, like what is the difference in value or, and I've sent Megan probably some kind of crazy messages about this, but the value of my creative work and the way that I feel that is like a very personal value that it is like about, I don't know how I'm going to fulfill some vision I had of what this thing is supposed to be like, whatever that is. And is very personal and deep, but I want I'm very lucky, I think, that my work can be, at least for now, like somehow participating in a community or in some kind of, but I don't think it matters that much how big or small that community is. I want, and I guess I used to kind of try to do volunteering things, plus do my job, plus do creative work, and it's too much. Like you have three different things. And maybe you're participating in your community thing. I mean, sometimes that's just like the reality and that's what you have to do, but like where you're doing things that are motivated by other people, whether I think that's your family or I don't think there's anything less noble or whatever about doing work for your, to care for your parents or your children or something like that. Or like, I don't have those things and I'm able to kind of make different choices maybe than other people would have. Um, But that's still like work is part of the value of that is that it's kind of, I don't know, interacting with the external world in a way that creative work is not. I don't know if I really have articulated that very well, but 
I think that's where I've landed. Like, I think your sense of discomfort is a useful sign of something that's out of alignment, but it doesn't mean that like, because you always have, I don't know, they're almost colonialist in this idea of like fixing something or not fixing something that I took a Mm -hmm. class on colonialism or decolonizing Ireland, actually, Um, like because of my background. It's a really good class. Um, But part of it was like, if you think about what you can actually do as the descendants of settlers, like everything is so screwed up in our world, having this idea that you can fix something is also partly a colonialist sort of adventure fantasy. Whereas Mm -hmm. the best thing to kind of think about, or a thing, I guess the best is also colonial idea. um, A thing that you can think about is like how to just start planting something that can become old growth because part of what colonialism does is it wipes out everything ancient, right? And so you are like in a field of trees that have been cut down and all you can really do to repair that situation is like start growing something again. So I think that is kind of like whatever you can kind of do that is growth. And like for me, those align with my work as well, but it may be that you reconceptualize that and maybe that is what your creativity does. I don't know. That's pretty abstract, but I'll stop talking. <laughs> no, it's good. It yeah. just makes me think like something I used to tell myself when my kids were preschool is that like I was doing a public service by lowering the bar on like preschool class party expectations and mm. things, you know, like being that parent who doesn't Pinterest or whatever it is now, TikTok fancy stuff, but just being like, you know what? like prepackaged cookies in a brown paper sack is fine for the soccer team snack. It doesn't need to be like a whole fancy, you know, gourmet picnic. And just kind of like being the one who's brave enough or lazy enough to just drop the ball so other people feel okay doing that as well. Maybe that's helpful. Um, but I, I, I'd never thought about it in the like colonialism context, but this idea of like the just increasing stakes and like always ramping up like expected and the expectations for other people who maybe, I don't know, maybe that's a way to use privilege is to mm. not spend $200 on but yeah I mean that I, reminds me of like the you know the quiet quitting mm, idea mm-hmm. that has been sort of percolating lately that we all realized we were doing too much and we all should just be doing less so that other people can also do less um quitting parenthood <laughs> yeah <laughs> just slowly slip away <laughs> uh yeah I I I wonder if we are, I mean, there ha- this is not novel, but people have been writing about this, like this idea of whether we are kind of coming to the end of ambition, at least the end of a, a generation of people for whom ambition was so, was such a motivating factor and, and how good that might be. It sounds great. <laughs> like it really does yeah. sound if we all just stopped trying so hard, at least in a professional sphere, not necessarily in, um, you know, interpersonally or um, like you were saying, in like community building and, and trying to actually make the world slightly better because nobody's making the world better by producing more B2B tech, right? Like, <laughs> I feel like we all need to acknowledge that is not making the world better. I think it's that ambition that is like uh, a value in and of itself. And it has driven like, you know, you're just supposed to be the best because you're supposed to be the best, right? Our entire Mm -hmm. school system also puts that for you. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. everything is about you should be at the top and like you're kind of defined by where you are in some kind of artificial 
ranking based on like nothing, like for what reason, right? Mm-hmm. My sister and I have been joking. She's got a baby uh, about starting a forest school just because like it would be really good to have kids just like be outside and to learn nature stuff from being outside, right? I mean, this is like a also a fantasy, but forest schools exist actually. But um, But I think, you know, there is something about rather than like artificial rankings, right? Or like how you do your performance reviews or whatever happens in the corporate space. Like why? Um, I mean, you want to get a promotion or whatever. Like there are, of course, legitimate reasons to try to achieve something. But the idea that we valorize ambition, I think particularly, I just worked very briefly for an American run company and it's even more striking there. Like Brits are maybe relatively lazy in some senses. (laughs) Anyway, uh, (laughs) but like, I think, you know, there is, just this like cutthroat situation where you're supposed to just be on all the time for no apparent reason. No one can explain to you why any of that is valuable aside from like, you should keep your job. (laughs) I mean, that's the whole thing. I don't think that can justify the level of effort into it. To your point about like, are we any of us passionate about whatever marketing text? Like, no, that's fine. Mm -hmm. I don't see why, you know, this whole movement to bring your whole self to work or something. I'm like, no, really, you shouldn't leave a really large part of yourself at home. (laughs) (laughs) Just bring the, like the professional part to work. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, there's also from a diversity perspective, like it means different things. And I'm not trying to make light of the fact that you're kind of allowed to be any sexual orientation or whatever culture that you're from, like, of course you should be allowed to do that. But there's a different element to bring your whole self to work that also involves like staying at work all the time. Right. Yeah. I think there's a generational pressure too, like, especially in the United States that every generation is supposed to be bigger and better. Like you're supposed to do better than your parents, you know, and it's something that your parents hope for you. Right. I think in her book, Can't Even, and Helen Peterson wrote really mm-hmm. She gathered the research like really eloquently there on the, you know, the upward push middle-class trajectory is that at least since World War II, every generation is to make more money and be more successful stuff, like physical stuff than the one before. And um, I think it's first generation to go to college is absolutely like a wonderful thing. And my mother was those, um, but at the same time, like maybe it's okay. Like my 10 year old for the longest time was like, I don't want to go to college. I mean, he's 10, so like whatever, but he had this whole plan to um, go to a community college and get like business training and merchandising training and then open a bookstore. And, you know, I was like, you don't actually need to go to college to do that. Like your plan is fine. Like that's, you know, and maybe there is kind of that pressure. Although I will say, I think our parents, I, I mean, I can't speak for everybody, but you know, I think my parents are fine with whatever I do. I'm happy. And that's how I feel. But at the same time, I am like, wow, they spent a lot of money for me to go to college, not this degree right now. So, you know, I don't know, but I worked only 30 hours a week last year. And that was so, I don't know, embracing like part-time when it's possible is, is something that I want to do as far as paid work goes. Uh, but then ditching the ambition when it comes to writing is a whole ask. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how to do that. I, you know, I think, again, not to bring up the, if, if people who are listening to this and haven't listened to the Jane Campbell interview, they really should, um, because I'm going to bring it up again here, but how she talked about how writing was just, you know, her hobby and she would sort of send things out for fun. And there is that, I feel like a lot of people say that a lot of people say, you know, if you, 
if you can't write just for yourself, then you shouldn't be doing it. You know, your, your work is for you. It's for nobody else. I have never felt that. I have never felt like I will be satisfied writing things and putting them in a drawer forever. And I think that that is, I'm sure, partially ambition. But I also think that it's intrinsic to how I feel about what art is and its function in the world, which is like, for me at least, not something that is purely personal. It is a connective force. It is something that is meant to be shared and discussed and participated in and used as like a a kind of connective tissue between all of us. You know, and I, I, a piece of writing for me does not really have life until somebody else is reading it. That's obviously different from like, you know, my journal, I, I keep notebooks, all of that. Sure. That's personal, but like an actual piece of writing that is a creative work I want in the world and I want people to be reading it. And if I'm totally honest, I want it like at the top of the New York Times bestseller list and being optioned for a Netflix series, you know, like, yeah, those are like, you know, big, big dreams because they hold kind of the allure and like the shiny allure and shiny appeal. But I'm I'm working on a novel now that is like nearly done. I'm going to start querying hopefully very soon. And I, if I'm honest, like if it doesn't get picked up, like that might be it for me in terms of novel writing. I I don't know. Like this is the first time I've written a couple before that have like been, been binned, put in drawers our way. This is the first one that feels like there are legs under it. But part of that is because I am imagining future readership and it was written for an audience in a way that previous ones weren't. And it doesn't really have life without that. I was actually like, I was a theater major in college. And I think I always loved theater, loved making theater and seeing theater in some ways more than I loved reading and writing because it was so collective. It was so participatory. It was theater really doesn't exist until you're in a room making it with other people and other people are receiving it. It's storytelling, right? Like it's storytelling. That's the telling seems to me to be the operative word. And yeah, I just, I have never been, I just have never been one of those people who is content being like, oh, I just write my little books and then they go into my little drawers. And like, what a fulfilling activity that is. That's not fulfilling. Like I I want it out there. I want someone to read it. Yeah. Yes. No, I think I also feel that. And I guess I'm still doing it motivated from like, I don't know, I guess the difference with my, from my version, external work is that it's not about kind of immediate, I don't know, task fulfillment, right? Like you're still moving from your internal essential question, however you frame that, I guess, or wherever your novel comes from or essay or something, right? But you do want, I mean, it is obviously a connective, not only to the future readers, but also like you're usually in discussion or dialogue with other art or events that have also happened in the world, right? Like it is, I like that phrasing. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you about how all of that links with the work questions, right? And I don't even know how to formulate that question. Yeah, it is very distinct, I think, in that sense, in terms of value as well as other things. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you teach too, right? So you do some editorial work, you teach, you write things that are not marketing communication. I do. Yeah. And I, 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 yeah. What do I want to say about that? (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
Sorry, that wasn't on the well. I guess planning. I, yeah, document. it's not on the the document. <laughs> no, but well, like, how do you conceptualize? Do you conceptualize like your writing as a future form of work in the way that we've been discussing mm. it already, or not? And how do you feel? I don't know. How do you feel about yeah. that? Like all of that. Sure. I mean, my my dream is to just write. If I if I kind of you know do my little you guys were talking about your five-year goal planning, figuring out your whole life. (laughs) I did not take it as a joke. I took it very seriously and really wanted to see your little documents and figure out how to make one of my own. Um, But, you know, I do like at the beginning of the year, those like think back on the year, the year compass kind of exercises and write a letter to your future self kind of thing. And it's always like, I wake up, I get to be with my kids, I putter around my garden, I read a little bit, and then I write for a few hours. And oh, look, at the end of the day, somebody has given me a lot of money for that work. <laughs> like, how, how joyous. <laughs> um, and that has never been the case. Like, I have never, creative work is the least monetarily valuable work that I have ever done. I have never made sustainable money from creative writing. And you were mentioning teaching, like, so yeah, I was teaching this workshop on and and have led a few workshops on personal essay writing and and pitching personal essays, because for a while, that was the bulk of the work that I was doing. It was never financially the work that was paying the bills. And I haven't written personal essay in a little while, not because I don't want to or don't have something to say, but because I I have had just like so many really dispiriting experiences. Um, and the last one was where an editor was like, oh yeah, we'll give you a thousand for this piece. And then I finished the piece and they were like, okay, here's 250. And I was like, oh, oh you said a thousand. And they were like, oh no, that was a typo. And it was just this moment where it was so like, it, it, it just the, the amount of like, it was a piece about parenting. It was a piece in which I ended up kind of reconceiving and talking to a bunch of other mothers about parenting during the pandemic. It felt very like raw in some ways, not necessarily the final piece, but at least the work that went into it. Um, And the other parents that I spoke to for the piece. And it was such a moment of like, why am I doing this? Like I, I could have, I don't know if that piece actually did end up in any way touching anyone. I'm might as well just have like spent that time talking to other parents, offering support to other parents, like just kind of siloing that away from trying to create something that was going to be both valuable in the sense that like other people would read it and feel some kind of like connection or feel like they were being seen or feel like there there was an avenue of support for them and financially valuable in that I spent, you know, a month working on something and got at least enough money that it felt like okay, that was worthwhile. Both of those things felt stripped away from the piece. And I was just like, what, what am I doing? And I have basically like not submitted or pitched anything since then, because pitching is like, it's just, it's such a dispiriting process. And I haven't ever, like, I'm certainly not now. And I don't know that I will ever be at a place where I am able to rely on just like the writing for money. So what does that mean? I don't know. I don't know if it means like, at some point you give up the writing, you know, if this, if this novel, if I don't get an agent, if the novel doesn't sell, does that just stop? And I do more editing or, or do I find another full time? I mean, I, I'm sort of, yeah, I, I think this is also, 
I, I mentioned this on our outline and this is a totally different tangent, which we can, yes, like address or not address, but like I had this sort of eye-opening conversation recently with somebody about chat GPT and AI and just like how it has completely shifting the landscape around marketing and copywriting, which is where I have made the bulk of my money. And that job writing for the supplement company, for example, disappeared under sort of weird circumstances. And I would 100% not be surprised if they just decided to start using AI because really all they were looking was for was like SEO bumps, which I, I like, God bless chat GPT. I don't want to be writing SEO content. Like nobody wants to be writing SEO content. So if that avenue disappears entirely, which is, is terrifying, not just for me, for other writers, for everybody else who's livelihoods are threatened. What will I do? I don't know. Part of me has this kind of like euphoric feeling like maybe weird creative stuff, which is what I really want to do, will suddenly have value again because it's what robots can't create yet. The really weird creative stuff. Maybe I'll become a quilter, like doing something that like apparently robots can't be dredgers. I don't know what dredgers do, but that's like the number one job that is not threatened by AI. So maybe I'll become a dredger. I don't know. Like there's like, are we returning to some kind of physicality in the world? Some, I, I genuinely don't know, but I do feel like, yeah, in a dream world, I would be supporting myself by my writing and also supporting myself in a way that didn't compromise the work and the writing that I want to do. And that seems like maybe an impossible dream, but that was always the goal and that continues to be the goal. And it is a goal that I have no idea, no sense of how close I may or may not be to that. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, I'm right there with you on, all. you know, maybe I would spend 20 hours a week, like in a library, helping people find books to read mm -hmm. and answering questions, but no more than that. Mm -hmm. Not enough to get so entangled that it, you know, I lose my energy. I, right now I volunteer about six hours a week in the elementary school library and it's so great. Um, but like part of that is with an eye on references and future jobs. No, I I'm with you. And like, I'm also thinking about the, just the collapse of online media in general yeah, um, and how it's just domino thing after another. And it's none of them are places that I've ever been like, Oh man, it's my dream to write there. But again, it just, it feels like I mean, it feels like 2001 when I was in college and wanted to be a journalist forever and the media landscape just like completely the print media landscape just went to hell. And I was like, well, this is not actually what I want to do. And I've never regretted that decision. So, you know, maybe that's good news. But at the same time, like, I don't know, I was telling Olivia yesterday, like, I feel like, so when you're surfing, there's like, you can see a wave coming, but you don't. You don't know how big it's going to be. You don't know if it's going to break like in the right place, but you still have to turn around and just start paddling and you paddle with your back to it and mm -hmm. it comes up behind you and then you have to catch it just right. And I feel like right now, like I can see a wave coming like with this five-year plan of ours, which it's not, it's not five years and you know, whatever, but with that kind of dream, right. I can see, I can see it coming and all I can do right now is just turn around and start paddling, but I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I don't know where yeah. I'm paddling, you know, but it's, it's similar. Um, it's similar to what you're saying. And, you know, part of me is like, well, I could spend a lot of time putting a lot of things out there, trying to get you know, more clips in my file. I could go to events and meet people. That seems to be really how it's done. Cynical. Um, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. 
I think on our five, just since it's been referenced here and we can <laughs> decide if we're going to actually keep this in or not, but uh, <laughs> our five year, so-called five, it's not a five-year plan, just whatever. And, but I think the main thing that really came through for both of us was making sure that the podcast or other things that we do that are not like technically our writing, but are somehow related to our writing personas, like that it doesn't pull away from our writing. And so mm. like sometimes in the past, the content, like we've just changed how, like, you know, we use the podcast, to like work through quotes, like we're doing right now. Um, and I think now where we're at is we both have like really weird niche interests basically. And we may use the podcast as a way to research our weird interests um, as opposed to maybe as I sometimes say, like live on the lifestyle pages of the internet, you know, like it's sort of about time management. I feel like we've kind of exhausted some of what we would say about that field. And so to really go deeper into whatever topics, and it's not probably surprising, may not even sound different to what we usually do, but for us, it was just making sure that we're sort of anchored, I think, and having in mind that we both have ambitious, to use that word, ideas of what we want to work on. You know, I mean, they're like interesting topics that we think are really interesting. So to use the podcast to kind of pull in the same direction as those projects, as opposed to it being kind of a separate like line, we're never going to monetize the podcast. We don't Mm -hmm. have ads. We don't make any money. We're not trying to, but we can use it for research purposes or other types of exploration. So I think it's Mm -hmm. sort of just thinking about where you're, where we're unnecessarily kind of losing energy basically. Um, yeah. like if you're paddling if like some... hell, you've got to be lined up with the wave. You can't be like yeah. at cross purposes or else you're just going to get, you know, swamped. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. I like, I like that idea that kind of like gut checking does everything I'm doing is everything I'm doing. Is this in alignment with, with what the greater goal is? Yeah. Although again, that feels like such a, um, a privileged position because sometimes you just got to make money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe Which, there are, yeah. yeah, I don't know. Maybe like this might or might be a stupid thing to say, but maybe there are ways that you can make money or one could make money that is like the, I don't know if there's copywriting or other things that, or editing or something that might be giving you access to materials that you not illegally, but in a totally legitimate way would be able to kind of feed into your compost pile for your creative writing or something that might feel a little bit more aligned. So at least, okay, you're not maybe not passionate about whatever it is, but at least it's not like pulling you away from the other yeah. stuff that you have going on. I don't know. Yeah. Everything I mean, that's, is that is the dream, right? Like, yeah, that, that you find, and I have in the past found gigs that have felt at least like, if not the work itself, then the people I'm working with, or even just like, the sort of freedom it gives me to do other things. But uh, yeah, when it runs up against what am I sacrificing to do this work? I don't know. There's, there are just times where like the equation does not, it does not equate like something, something is being sacrificed or lost or abandoned and I can't make it make sense. I can't, I can't justify it to myself in a way that makes me feel good. Is there, so maybe this is another naive question. Sorry. Uh, I mean, that was what drove me ultimately to quit my job and the money I make is not comparable to what I made before. Yeah. Um, and even, I think if I had to work like this long-term, it would be challenging. Um, but I also, there's very like, whatever, I won't get into it, but like there are other 
it's sort of patchy. So I had really busy couple of months, then less busy is the usual stuff. Is there a way, like nothing that you, I don't know. Like, I don't think that articulating very well, the, the sacrifice, the way that you phrase it is sort of sacrifice, but maybe you sacrifice less and have less if there's a way for that to work because it's not long-term like that sacrifice isn't always going to feel the same right so if you really feel this is what what I'm telling myself as well if you really feel that urge I mean I hope the Ukraine war doesn't go on forever there may be I might feel differently about a variety of things later but right now like I all I can do is work on investigations that somehow contribute to that situation or like whatever, investigating things related to that, not contributing to the war. Um, <laughs> but, you know, like I just can't, I just honestly cannot make it work. As you say, cannot make that equation work for me if I don't do this. Um, but also, I don't know, I'm not buying designer clothes as much. So like this were is you, Were you ever buying a lot of just buying a lot of suits or whatever, you know, <laughs> like it's the things that make you feel good when you work a corporate job. It's yeah. like taking expensive taxis and buying nice clothes. Um, sounds really frivolous. Anyway, that's what happens when you don't have kids. And um, yeah, but I am fine with that equation for now, like having less, but also I'm super privileged and not everybody has that choice. So like it may, I don't know, that's just where I landed, but I'm also really lucky to be able to make the calculation but like genuinely I'm currently at like a fraction not a large fraction of my income that I was at before I think too something that I you know I know I've told you before Megan I tell people with younger kids younger than mine all it really does get easier it's better and it changes and like something Olivia is always telling me too is whatever and we're telling each other whatever decision I make today is not like this is it and I don't get to make another decision for the rest of my life is always really hard to believe and to act on and everything feels really urgent because it is, I mean, and that's not to downplay, you know, the urgency of having an infant in that, you know, NICU, like, God, that's awful. You do have to drop everything when that kind of thing happens. But I don't know, like I, I have a friend who has teenagers and she is always saying like how she hates when people would say to her when we're little or when people say to little kids like, oh, just you wait, you know, and she's like, it shouldn't mm. be a warning. It should be like exciting, you know, just you wait. It gets so much better. Like you can have conversations. They can beta read your stuff. I mean, you know, like <laughs> that is the coolest. Um, you can hang out and it's just a different relationship and they're like human beings and people. And I know that you're seeing this already with three and especially when you have two, because like the second one just feels a little easier in some ways. Cause you're just like, okay, I know. I know not just from like logic, but I know from experience that this six month sleep regression is she will start sleeping again. I will start sleep. I'm not, I don't do well with interrupted. Like I'm an absolute mother. So, but you know, that does change. And then, but then again, like then you run into like, oh God, everything's changed. Now what? You know? um, so maybe, you know, paraphrase Octavia Butler, like changes life and all of that, right? Like God is change, change what we have. I mean, that's reality, but I don't know how to like accept it. It's hard to work within it, right? But we have seen just in the last 20 years, 10 years, media changed so significant. It's hard to make those plans to know right. what the next niche, what personal essays are going to write about. I don't know. Yeah. Other than maybe like accepting it makes you let worry about it less. I haven't found that to be true, but I'm trying. <laughs> I feel like there's so many different ways we could go. <laughs> like sidebar, <laughs> but like, yeah. Uh, 
I feel like there's so much more I want to say. Mm. Well, I think about like, um, you, you were both talking about this, the, the seasonality of life or considering your life as seasons. And it's something that I have tried and failed to internalize many times before, <laughs> tried to internalize that like, this is just a fallow time and more creativity will come later or more achievement will come later or more like I, the, the pile that I will get bigger. Uh, the pile of things I have accomplished will get bigger at a different time. I have a friend, a really a close friend from, from childhood who is an actor and she has like been very successful, is like Emmy nominated, is on an HBO show right now, has been Emmy nominated for that. And she's incredible. And we have had a lot of conversations, usually just by voice note, because she's very busy and important, where she is like, I wish that I was puttering around the garden with the baby. And I'm like, I wish that I was starring on an HBO show with an Emmy <laughs> nomination. Like, how how could you want this? And she's like, how could you want this? So, and she and I have also talked about seasons and the idea that like the season she is in right now is this like great, creative, prolific moment. Um, and that she is genuinely hoping for a season in which she can leave that behind and tend to a, a literal garden and like a, a, hopefully a baby and family building and a much like quieter existence than the one she leaves or lives now. And I am in many ways hoping for the inverse of what I live and lead the life I lead now, at least in terms of like success. I don't actually want to be the kind of like public figure that she is, but I want to at least feel like I am producing things of value, which then also makes me feel very discomforted because I have produced two children <laughs> who are of great value to me. And I do need to remind myself often that the little one is eight months old. Like in any other country, I would still be on maternity leave and supported financially by social systems that just don't exist here. And I think when I say things like, I just wish I could be a stay-at-home parent, I wish I could be a trad wife, like the the joy of that is the idea that I could just have some kind of, that I could look at my kids and my day-to-day life and feel like I have put all of myself there and like how gratifying that is, as opposed to putting myself in six different buckets and how deeply unsatisfying that is because you get to the end of the day and feel like you've done all of those buckets have like that much in them, which is so unsatisfying as opposed to one bucket having this much. Oh, it's a podcast. People can't see what I'm doing with my hands. <laughs> a full bucket, <laughs> full bucket versus a, a tiny drops in a bucket. And, you know, I, I think thinking of things, thinking of the idea that like we change, we are in certain seasons, it will get easier. It will become, or if not easier, at least different, it will become different is a really beautiful way of thinking of it. I don't know why I can't internalize it. I wish I could. When I can, it does feel immensely rewarding and good. And I I wish that there was some kind of like, yeah, I don't, I just, I don't know. I don't know what it is that makes that way of thinking so elusive sometimes. Like, is it something that is built into the human condition? Is it something that is built into the time and the moment that we live in? Is it something that is built into just like, like we've been talking about kind of generationally, the messages that we've been 
that we've been given and that we've had to internalize. Um, it's also something that is, is, you know, just as you were saying, Olivia, like financially, we are making, you know, my husband and I have talked about like, okay, this is a spend season. And, and hopefully at some point we will be in a save season. Like we have two kids in care right now, which is so ungodly expensive in a couple of years they'll be in public school that will be like a burden that is lessened for us financially and and maybe that will make our equation slightly different in terms of how much work I have to do because you know he's my husband's an academic he's like got his job for for life he's he's happily like squirreling away doing his research and teaching and like he's set he feels done he he feels like he's got it um, after like many, many, many years of school and and all of that. But I still feel like I'm in this kind of like grasping place where I haven't put things together in the way I want them to be put together. So yeah, that should be okay. It doesn't feel okay. I don't know how to make it feel okay. Meditating maybe like <laughs> there's gotta be, there's something, but I haven't, I haven't, cl- it hasn't clicked yet. But a minute ago, I just want to ask a follow-up. So a minute ago, you said when you are able to think in terms of seasons, then you mm. feel better. So what are the circumstances when you're able to think that way? I think when it all doesn't feel quite so panicky, like the, there's the sort of very real financial panic, like when I'm not looking at our credit card statements or our bills, when I'm not looking at Instagram and engaging in like that horrible comparison shopping. Yeah. When I'm just like in that sort of, in those moments of real singular purpose, when I'm just with my kids and tending to them without my phone in a real like present way or when I'm with my manuscript and like deep in an edit and feeling like all that matters is like rearranging these words on this page and I and I am moving it forward those are the moments when it feels like oh this is what I'm doing right now this is where my focus is and this is good yeah I'm wondering if there's like I mean, Megan's, she can talk about it herself, but her conceptualization of seasons is almost to a micro level as well. And, it, but there's a physicality, like there's sort of certain weeks, she'll talk about it anyway. And my, but part of what is working, I was just thinking about it while you're talking, part of what's working for me is your image of the buckets is really apt, I think, because yeah, there's a lot of different things I have going on and I don't want to quit any of them now at this point. Um but it's helpful for me to kind of break my week. Um, it's again, kind of a physicality where it's like this bucket of time I'm doing this particular thing. Right. And then also, you know, I have paid work and putting that in its place as well within the week and kind of, and I also have days where like, honestly, this morning I got up and I was like, I really need to replant those tomato seedlings. So I did that and that was like, an hour, it took an hour and, you know, that didn't feel very productive, definitely. But, you know, to your point about your day that you felt good about until you thought about whether it was sort of productive or not, I think also that empties the fallow space. I think having a physicality or a, a bucket for that regeneration is also really important. So to the degree that you can kind of pick a physical or kind of real image that has some kind of meaning for you and put parameters around it might be helpful. I'll let Megan explain her system she wants. Yeah, sure. I mean, there's two things. Like one, one thing is I think, I think what it also sounds like is when you don't know when a season is going to end, really difficult to sit. And it's mm-hmm. kind of like what I was saying about the difference between your baby and your second is I had so much more. My husband will laugh at me and say he were absolute with the night waking, but <laughs> I did. And man, I'm telling you on his 
first birthday, like his actual birthday, I was like, here's some milk in a cup, going to get me some green cabbage leaves. Like you are cut off and we are done. Um, like the first six months of, of breastfeeding was wonderful. This last six months were hell and I was, you know, pumping and all of a sudden, but knowing, knowing that it wasn't going to last forever through experience really helped me. But like, how do we experience life ahead of time? Like twice, you know, it's not like, and so <laughs> I don't know, like not knowing when it, something is going to come to an end and you're going to get to move on is really hard. Also, we move every on average, every 18 months, probably. Um, so since like I, we've known since March, we've known the whole time that we've been living where we are now, like since last summer that we'd be moving this summer, but we've known where we're going since March. And so it's also been really hard on the flip side to not, not just plan like this summer's move, but next summer's right. And not yeah. just like all of that. But I think the not knowing is so hard and not knowing there's a definite scarcity mindset for me. It's like, well, if this is the season of my life, what happens if I don't get to the next season and then I don't ever get my chance? Like, okay, so this is my really intensive parenting phase, but what happens if I'm not lucky enough to make it to where I have like grown kids and time on what, what happens then? So I, I don't have an answer to that other than like maybe pinpointing sort of where those are coming from helps a little bit, but then just for like practical things like like seasonality and it and it is helping me accept like looking at seasons on a really micro level on a month to month basis has really helped me accept like in sometimes some days like ask me tomorrow I'll be sending Olivia like a 45 minute voice note that's just nothing but angst helps me kind of accept seasons in other ways like this thing does come to an end but and it's just been in the last like year or so and it's related to my age I've been paying like really close attention to my hormonal cycle and how things feel different. And, you know, there's like 10 days to two weeks where I can do everything. And some I'm like master of the universe. And then there's like week of hell. And then the week where all I, all I can do is sleep. And just recognizing that that exists. And the fact is that like in those two weeks, I probably get more done than like a man with hormonal fluctuations, like a, <laughs> you know gets done in the whole four weeks. And so like, it's fine. It all evens out, but just sort of knowing what's coming and kind of planning my, at least my writing life around it, you know, it's like, okay, these are two really good weeks for drafting. This is a good week for research. This is a week for editing and just sort of figuring out where that fits has made me feel less like the tide all the time. And also I can say, but again, it's finite and it's short and it's, a, you know, I'm like, oh, that like next Tuesday, I'm going to wake up and feel great. So I can accept, but it's really hard to do that. I know when my youngest kid is in first grade that, you know, you're just like, that doesn't even seem real. So I don't know what I'm trying to do. It's probably successful 30%. Well, right. And like you said too, you don't want to live like that and realize you've not been present in all of this, like that you, I don't, I don't want to miss this phase of my kids you know if this is likely our last baby and I and I actually love babies <laughs> I love little squishy babies I'm not getting much sleep and it's like you know physically draining but the idea of never having another little a little bean is like so so devastating to me and I I just so as much as I'm like, oh, well, when she's older, I'll have more brain space. I'll have more time. I'll have more. But then she'll be older and she won't be here. She won't be a little squishy bean. And I don't want to live like that either. So it's somehow about like accepting that this season will end, but also 
being able to live so deeply within this season and enjoy this season. And I, yeah, that's maybe where like the part of another both and thing happens. And I, I'm not great at maybe no, no humans are great at like living, existing in dualities like that. But um, did you ever read Mary Laura Philpott's I Miss You When I Bleed? No, it's, I would, it's an yeah. essay collection. Okay. She talks, I mean, she talks about that, that, that like, if I could have a time machine to send me back, not forever, but just send me back for like two hours to hold my, my toddler. And then, and then I can come back to the present when a teenager lived my normal life. But if I could have that and sort of the experience of looking at your, looking at your, you know, 12 year old, like this morning, I look at my seventh graders, he's getting on his bike and thinking like, oh, my little, I can see his little like baby self in his gawky teenage self. But I don't want him back that way, but you know, just the like little, um, and then she talks about everything else too, being a person, especially a type A. Great book. And she's lovely. She's in our back catalog of guests. We love her. We're like big fans. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. And I think your, your point though, about like focusing on one thing at a time and the the older I get, the less patient I am with multitasking, you know, maybe, maybe that's just part of it is you just like figuring out how we do one thing at a time. I was going to say. Also, all seasons are not the same length. So your seasons or my season will not be Megan's season or whatever. And I'm fortunate to have Megan as a friend as like, and for each other. I'm sure you have other close friends that are like very keen observers of how you, you know, whatever. If like, if one of us tries to introduce a new system that goes against our own time, I'm like, no, Megan, you can't do that. <laughs> like, you know, um, so thinking about how, you know, you might have like, You've been thinking about certain times where you're in your manuscript as a micro season or something, if that might help it feel more, I don't know, feel there's sometimes it's just like also having a narrative framework that helps to make the thing make sense. Like if you can tell your story that makes sense, yourself a story that makes sense about what you're doing, like that's, you know, from the very beginning, it sounds like you're really struggling to articulate logic to what you're doing. And so either what you're doing ideally would need to be changed or like that maybe the logical framework that you're operating with could change. Yeah, I think that's really true. I think part of it is just the part of my discomfort lately has just been the lack of clarity. Like I do just feel like I'm flailing like, oh, I should be putting more time here. Oh, I should be putting more time there. And like, if I were actually able to just kind of create a narrative framework for this moment, this part of this part of life, it would feel a lot a lot safer, at least a lot more. Yeah. I would feel more comfortable existing within those definitions. Yeah. And we, you know, we do keep talking about Jane Campbell, what, so she has hindsight of looking back and being able to create that narrative framework. Right. Right. See the big picture. Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty sure we all have narrative frameworks about like ourselves in college that are make a lot more sense than whatever we really felt and thought at the time, you know? Yeah. Which is not to denigrate her narrative. It's a great narrative framework. It's hard to come up with something that compelling in real time. Yeah. (laughs) Ah. I live my life with alarms because it's the only way I can remember. That's actually something that helps me be a little more present is not having to pay attention to what time it is. That's kind of genius. I can just ignore and then my alarm will go. It's not. I canceled that. this. (laughs) Um, Forgot to turn off. I have about five more minutes, so it depends. I feel like this is also sort of a stopping, not that we got to an answer, but I feel like we've (laughs) rounded out a topic. Um, I don't know how you're feeling, Megan, by both of you, Megan's. We covered. I feel like it was a lovely chat. (laughs) (laughs) That was the whole point, right? (laughs) Yeah, we didn't solve it, but it felt good. Yes. I think just putting names to things makes a big difference. Yeah. Yeah. 
Maybe somebody will write in with the answer. We don't know. That's right. That would be so handy. Yeah. <laughs> They'll be like, try this narrative framework and then yeah. it'll work. It'll be Great. <laughs> I don't know. Honestly, really hard. Yeah. And also for me, like I could be a really different person in on a different day. Like some days I'm feeling mm-hmm. like pretty fine about things. Some days not. And yeah, it's really depending your feeling like on any. Yeah. Yeah. Olivia and I always joke <clears throat> about we're always at we're like on a seesaw, which has been really great. <laughs> like get yourself a friend who knows you better than you know yourself, who can predict exactly what you're going to decide like six months before you decide it when you're still at like, churning stage. Um, and who is kind enough to only say like, I told you so once, um, <laughs> but also is on like opposite ends of the emotional spectrum. So like whenever mm-hmm. I am you know, a complete mess. She's very level-headed and it's fine. It's this thing. And then like maybe two days later, flip. But we're very rarely in the weeds together. The nice. So. That's amazing. I don't know how you guys met. College. We were college, yeah. yeah. That's so lovely. Yes. More than half our life now. I know. Exciting. 20, yeah, I know. It's really good. Almost 24 years ago. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Guaranteed. We're all wrestling with the same, same things. I think we all are, you know, I think that's mm-hmm. just, yeah. I don't know if it's, midlife or you stop caring like we were talking before we started recording about like the freedom from the male gaze or all of those like we have stopped worrying about so many things important that now it's time to focus on the things that figuring out the things that are for all and then focus yeah I think that whole question of value like 10 years ago or five probably I had no way of conceptualizing value that was outside of green capitalisms whatever and it's just so empty like you can really exhaust yourself in that value value paradigm and why and yeah at some point you just sort of then you have to come up with your own but that's a much more fraught process right. <laughs> to anyone else you know well and you have to come up with your own while still existing within yeah. mainstream capitalism which demands so much of you yeah which is also hard to be like I will live within your value system but not adhere to it like how do you yeah I don't know how to do that no that's what we're working on yeah, it's the double conscious until the revolution. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait. I think the revolution honestly will not be kind to us. Uh, so nope. anyway, um, yeah, we'll cut that part out. Um, <laughs> I, I think I, I like it. <laughs> TV. It's, it's our new tagline until the yeah. revolution. Till the revolution, <laughs> and then also the revolution will not be kind to us. Yeah. <laughs> No, but um, thank you so much. This yeah, is thank so you great so much to talk about. This thank stuff. you. Yes, yeah. thank you. I had an amazing time. Love chatting. Yes, me too. And that's it for this week. You can find us online at marginallypodcast.com and on Instagram at marginallypodcast. Our email is podcast at marginallypodcast.com. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to our newsletter. The sign up form is on our website. And if you enjoy the show, please consider rating it and leaving a review in your podcast app and or sharing an episode with a friend. This will help us to grow our community. Thanks for listening and happy writing. Marginally is produced by the two of us, Megan and Olivia. So excuse any amateur issues. We're working on it. Theme music is It's Time by Scotty Gotti Casca. Show notes for every episode are available at marginallypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. I mean, I have a little bit more time. Um, Yeah. Just going to a wine tasting. (laughs) (laughs) Shower for that. Oh, wow.